Hi, and welcome to the Authentic Audience Podcast. I'm your host, Krista Ritma. This is a marketing podcast like you haven't heard before. It's about real connections and honest conversations. Why am I here? To remind you that you can fly. If you're brave enough to listen to that calling inside you, I'm here to serve you and show you that marketing can and should be honest, that the truth sells and authenticity wins. So how can businesses and brands build a real and authentic audience? The Authentic Audience Podcast gives you insight into growing your business and marketing strategies to gain real followers and loyal customers. Each week, I create a space of radical honesty for thought leaders and entrepreneurs who have built successful businesses to share their insights on business, marketing, relationships, life, and spirituality. Each episode is sure to remind you the power of storytelling and truth selling. Get ready to get real, get raw, get honest, and keep growing. Luca Lesson is a spoken word poet and rapper whose work engages with the Greek mythology of his family homeland, the fiercely political and the vulnerably self-reflective. Luca has been commissioned by the Queensland Symphony Orchestra, the National Gallery of Victoria. He has also released two musical albums and two independent books and has been published in a number of poetry collections. Luca has always used education-based programs as a means for social change, both within Australia and abroad, and his work is currently being studied in English departments across the country. In 2017, Luca established his first poetry retreat. The Rhodes Poetry Retreat is based in his grandfather's village on the island of Rhodes and welcomes poets of different levels and styles from across the planet. I was recently introduced to Luca and am blown away and just inspired by his authenticity and message and all of the things. So I'm super happy to have this conversation. Welcome. Thank you. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. Ooh, it's weird. It's weird sitting through your own bio, I tell you. I know. Everyone says that. Yeah. I mean, how does it feel? It feels like, wow, I did all that. I'm doing all that stuff. I really am doing all this stuff. You know, like on the day to day, you do one little thing at a time, one line, one new word in a poem, one, you know, little thing, one collaboration. Uh, and then you look back and you're like, wow, yeah, I've been doing stuff. You've been doing stuff, a lot of stuff. It's been so cool to sort of, since we started working together a little more closely, see more into this world that I literally knew nothing about. And now I feel like I'm waiting for every new post, every new poem, every new video, along with the rest of your fans and audience. So I'm in and I am just so excited by the work that you're doing. So The first question I usually ask people, and I'll just start there, and then we can dive more into your story because it's so cool, is your why. Um, Why you do the work that you do. Yeah, that's a really good question. I guess for me personally, as someone who's now fully inculcated, fully entrenched in this idea of what a, a poet can be and what a life as a poet is, personally, my why comes from something deeper than like an intellectual sentence my why is actually that I needed to I needed it I was very depressed I was bordering on suicidal I was in a very difficult place in my life and any time that I had faced a difficult situation in my life writing was really a way of getting my pulling myself out of it each line was like a thread that could kind of unravel or re-stitch together what, what had been lost or what had been broken. And, yeah, one word at a time, I kind of feel like I wrote my way out of that dark hole. Uh, and a similar thing had happened when I was in high school and I lost a really good friend of mine, a dear friend of mine in high school, was hit by a car while I was overseas. Mm-hmm. So it was the first time I went to Greece and revisited, you know, visited the homeland for, for the first time in my life. And when I returned home, I realized that one of my best friends had been killed while I was away. And I, I don't think my family really knew how to deal with that so much, or at least my parents, we didn't have deep conversations about it at the time. And as a teenager, I didn't really have many tools to deal with that. But I started writing a diary. And instead of writing Dear Diary, I wrote Dear Omar was his name. And so I would write kind of letters to him, you know, in the middle of the night in a dark corner of my bedroom by myself, um, smoking cigarettes at 2am on the balcony, 
<laughs> spraying my hands with deodorant in the morning so my parents wouldn't notice. And oh, writing. hey, that's smart. There's a good tip. <laughs> Thank you. Here's a good tip. <laughs> um, that's what I'm here for. And I, <laughs> I wrote. I wrote my way out of that situation, I guess. And and then when another situation turned up around in my twenties and um, mid twenties, I I did the same. I started writing again and performing and. Um, some of those things that I wrote, I, I ended up yeah performing on stage and most of them I didn't end up performing on stage and I ended up finding a, a home, a home for me that is that is this safety of a pen and a, a page and being able to be brutally honest with myself and with the world and and I realised that it's not for everybody, you know, for an Olympic runner, if they have to make a big decision, they go for a run. If they are depressed, they go for a run. If they're super happy with the world and the sun's out, they go for a run. Like that's where they feel safe and at home. And for me, for, for a lot of my life, I realized that that was, you know, having time with a pen and a page. And so my why is really that it wasn't like an intellectual decision. It wasn't like, oh, should I become a, a I don't know, a, an architect or an engineer or a lawyer or maybe a poet or, you know, oh, yeah, poetry, that's a good idea. It was more like it chose me. It's like I had to do it to, to mm. feel safe, feel good, to feel grounded. Um, and from there, it's grown. And I've understood more so outside of my own self, outside of my own body, I'll be able to look at it, look at what the impact is that I have on the world, look at what poetry can do for communities. And I've realized that my why that I can articulate is something that is more so around this ability of words to, to really weave um, people together. In ancient Greece, there's a word uh, called rhapsode. So a rhapsode, or you might hear from Bohemian Rhapsody. So that word rhapsody or rhapsode is an ancient Greek word that describes somebody who would travel around and perform poetry. They would memorize the whole Odyssey or the whole Iliad um, written, composed by Homer. And there would be like 30 hour long poems that they would just memorize and travel around, stay in a town for say a month and perform an hour of it per night for a month or so before traveling to the next one. And rhapsode wow. actually means weaving together, stitching together. So the idea, obviously a simple way of talking about it is that they stitch together poems. They stitch together scenes and stanzas and words and sentences and phrases to create these big worlds, these epic poems. But also I believe they stitch together community. They stitch together the people that are listening to it. They get to witness the mythology. They get to place their own personal lives within the symbols and, and um, ideals and metaphors within these massive stories and go, ah, uh, a cyclops for me is different to what a cyclops is to the person next to me. Um, but this idea of, of David and Goliath of overcoming these great um, troubles and, and problems in our lives, we can be aligned with each other in that sense. And these stories are the way that we witness the world together and understand our connections. And so that's my why now. That's my more overt why beyond what it does for me, what it does for the planet is this, is this stitching together. In Australia, we have a saying, I don't know if you say it in the States as well, telling a yarn or spinning a yarn. Have you yeah. heard that? No. Yeah, in Australia, um, there's a there's a there's a saying. Yeah, we'll get together and spin a yarn. Or he was telling a yarn, and yarn is is obviously what you use to weave things together, and that's a metaphor for telling a story in English in in Australia. So this is kind of where my why is at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. It's so powerful. Your work. It's very specific, and I think. Um, I mean, one thing to touch on, just the writing, I think that it's so, I'm, it doesn't come as naturally to, to me. And when I do sit down and write, it's just the most cathartic and healing thing. And I've started doing it a lot more lately. I've taken a bunch of writing courses. I just had a bunch of writers come into my world. And so I decided that I wanted to take more writing classes. And it's just with me, it's really hard without a prompt. And that's sort of the way I work as a creative. And what's so interesting about the way you work as a creative and as an artist or the way Trevor works, for example, is, or any artist really, and why I don't consider myself one is because that spark of an idea 
doesn't come to me. But if you give me a prompt or if you give me a solution or you start me off on a story or writing something, then I can go and I can write and I can roll with it. But that initial idea, like some of your poems and some of the spoken word uh, videos that I've watched, it's like, how did that, where did this come from? I want to hear more about the Greek mythology side of this. Um, one of my favorite ones is Antidote. Um, mm. And just the profoundness that goes into that, like how does how does it begin? How does one of your pieces begin? Do you have like a topic in mind or a prompt or just does a line come to you first? How, do, how does your process work? It's really an interesting question because I actually really love structure as well. Like I mm. really love, being given like this is what you're writing about go for it uh and so there seems to be two main processes for me for writing one is i have an idea or someone's given me an idea i've been commissioned to write something or i have like a strong structure um, that i can work from and i roll with that as best i can and i fill in the gaps of a structure or an idea that's already there and in some ways, the title is like the first thing that I've got. This is the title of the poem. This is what it's going to be about. You know, I have an idea. I even have an idea of where it should end maybe. But usually I'm wrong about that. Usually that's only the halfway mark and I have to search further for the ending. But a lot of the time there's this idea that I'm going to write about this thing. When I did the commission for the Queensland Symphony Orchestra, I did a story that was a biography about a uh, basically a, fa a founding father of Australia named Governor Lachlan Macquarie. And he is held up as a hero for some people and as a villain for others because, yes, he's a founding father, but he also ordered the first government-sanctioned massacre of Indigenous people, um, the Appen Massacre of 1816. So he's heralded as this hero. We have universities named after him and all these places named after him, but obviously for First Nations communities in Australia, he's not a hero to be held up at all. And so I knew the structure. I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to tell the story of his life. I wanted it to be uh, something that delves into this idea of, of what happened then, this thing that he did, this atrocious thing that he did, this atrocity, and, and also talk about how that parallels with, with police brutality today in the world and, and how really him giving that green light for his arming and police people to be able to do this in a legal way um, meant that, it created a culture of police brutality in Australia, really. And so I knew what I was going to do. I knew what I was setting out to do. I just needed to do it. And that's one way that I work where I really, I know to a certain extent where I'm going. And another way that I work is that I have absolutely no idea whatsoever. And there's everything in between these two processes, I guess. But the other way, the other extreme is that I have no idea what I'm going to do. I basically am doing a stream of consciousness writing. I'm writing every single thing that comes to mind, no matter how weird it is, no matter how strange it seems. I'm not letting my critical brain enter the space at all. I'm only being creative. I'm only letting the creative side of my brain fill up a page. And I'm doing that for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, two hours. And through that, uh, a subconscious kind of reality, a subconscious idea of what I have to say comes through bubbles up as long as I get out of the way pretty much. So the first process is kind of like I'm in the way I'm like handling it. I'm right. researching, I'm learning and I'm reinterpreting and I'm making historical facts rhyme basically and creating a narrative and, and not sacrificing the narrative for the rhymes and making sure the facts are straight. And there's all this process, you know, and then the other way is like, I'm totally, it's all almost like this facade of who Luca is on a day-to-day -day basis is, is not there or is, as, is at least, you know, we've pressed pause for a period of time and I'm not judging anything that comes out um, and that goes on the page at all. And most of it isn't usable, but there are things in there that are gems that I would never have written if I was trying to control what I have to say the whole time. So, as somebody who does this for a living, right? So you've turned this passion for writing and poetry into a full-blown career, and this is what you do. At what point does the critical brain come in? 
like at what point does that brain come, you know, that piece come back in and be like, okay, how do we sell this? How do we cut this down? Like what part in your process does that part happen? You know, I, and I've asked Trevor this as well on the podcast, like, you know, obviously the message comes through, he's connected, he's with it, but then there's the whole business side to it. So for me, I think that that would be really difficult because that critical side of my brain is always on. And I know for artists, it's, it's always there. Um, but so how do you navigate that? Yeah, this conversation around the ego, like destroy the ego, kill the ego, you know. It's not about, it's basically just about being, becoming more in control of this situation. So if I'm going to be completely honest, most of the time I'm kind of not in control. Like the critical brain is also what makes me a good poet, is also what makes me a good artist, is also what makes me second guess my poems and make them better before I put them out into the world. So this is not a bad thing to have the critical brain. In an ideal circumstance, I'm writing, 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 writing. I'm choosing lines within that writing that I like and i'm trying to make sure that what i like is actually the best line because <laughs> it's not necessarily i'm trying to be more vulnerable than people usually are because i believe it's the the role of the artist and the poet to be a bit more vulnerable than their audience so that their audience goes oh wow i'm going through that too now i don't have to say it on stage because someone said it for me and now i don't feel so alone as i did before i heard that poem because someone else is going through it too so trying to be vulnerable but also not giving away too much of my life to the public world i don't want to tell i don't first of all i don't want to use my audience as my therapist mm. and i don't want too much of my personal life to be out into the world because I know that there are people out there that use that in ways that I um, would not like them to use it or wouldn't give permission to use it. So I have to be careful in that sense. But for the most part, I'm being as free as possible writing. When I'm writing it, I'm not thinking about that at all. When I'm writing it, I'm not thinking who's going to hear this. Oh, oh, no, I can't say that. Oh, no, I can't say this oh, no, this is too rude or this is too personal or this is too whatever. Um, I'm not thinking about that at all. But then when I've got a first draft, when I've, when I've chosen the bits that I like, when I've joined them all together, when I've maybe filled in the gaps, when I've figured out what I'm really trying to say in the poem, when it, when it comes to an ending that feels like I've hit the nail on the head, really that's the job of the poet is just to try and hit a nail on its head, you know, to really kind of go, what am I trying to express? And have I expressed it in the clearest way possible, in the most powerful way possible, maybe? Um, not necessarily clear because it's okay for there to be layers and, and shadows and difficulty within poetry. Um, but when I feel like that's done, when I feel like I, I get this feeling in my gut, really, that's just like, yeah, that's, I'm satisfied, I'm satiated with this poem, mm. then, then I'll usually, the last thing will, that will happen is that I will put, the title on. So in that process, the title comes last. I know I figured out what I'm trying to say by the time I've finished the poem. Uh, whereas the, the other process, the title's kind of first and I go along this road and try and get it done. Uh, so the critical brain is useful in that whole process. And really it's kind of trial and error. Uh, it's like you learn more about yourself. It's the blank page is kind of like the yoga, yoga mat, you know, like you, you go and you face yourself every time you, you get back to your practice or the meditation cushion or whatever your art form is, the canvas for the painter. You meet yourself there in this practice. And so in many ways, I'm, I'm always still learning. I find it difficult. As you know, we've discussed to call myself like to do a masterclass, you know, because I feel like I'm always going to be a student. I'm always going to be... Um, ignorant of some part of this process and I'm always changing as well so it's such a personal practice that there's always some little new nuance within my practice that I don't know about yet that I'm going to discover the next time I put pen to page and so yeah the critical brain is useful but it's just make sure that your best lines don't stay in your head 
That's really the problem. <laughs> Make sure your best line, you know, that your lines, you, you have a thought and you go, nah, that's shit. But you haven't written it down yet. Write it down first and then decide whether it's shit because the time between brain and pen or brain and hand and pen and page, a lot can happen. A lot of magic can happen. A lot of power can happen in, in those short seconds. And sometimes that's, that's the most important. That's the best line that you could have, you would have missed out on. I think that's such good advice. I mean, I like jokingly say all the time I've written half my book in my head, like before I go to bed Mm. and I just have the best ideas and the best lines and like whole pages come through. And then all I need to do is roll over and write it down. But for me, the resistance is so strong. And I love what you said. I mean, there's so much to unpack here and so much I want to touch on, but um, specifically around, and also all my favorite artists are like painfully humble, but that's okay because then I wouldn't have a job. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll do it for you. So yeah. you can step into that space. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but being more vulnerable than your audience, I think that that's such an interesting piece. And I used to teach yoga and lead classes. And I think even though, even on social media, I'm incredibly vulnerable and I find it so funny sometimes because like I share about mental health a lot, but I don't share about it when I'm in it. Mm. I share about it after I've had like a teachable moment, some Mm. aha, like sharing experience, not like when I'm like, I would never post like when I'm in it. Because like you said, there's a fine line between using your audience as your therapist. But I found, you know, mostly people are like, wow, thank you so much. I feel less alone. But then I have had other people like reach out and want to like work with me or help me. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 I'm okay. Like I have, I have a great therapist. I have great tools. Um, I'm just sharing to be vulnerable. And I just think that there is such a fine line there when you choose to be vulnerable. And I, I've never thought about it that way and being more vulnerable than your audience. And I just think that that's so profound. And I think it's really important that you do that, especially in the marketing world in many ways, because so much of it is about being perfect Mm. and portraying yourself as perfect. So then that people are are attracted to your perfection. They want a bit of your perfection. And so they're going to come and do your course. or they're going to come and learn your product or they're going to come and buy your thing because they, their inadequacy makes them feel like you can fill that gap because you don't have that inadequacy. Whereas mm. if, you, if you speak truth and you say, yeah, there's, there's parts of me that, that are difficult, that, that I am inadequate, I feel inadequate too, that, that the world that we live in in many ways preys on our no feeling of lack, that we lack certain things, that we lack certain you know, success markers or whatever we measure our success with. And, and then we fill that gap by trying to sell someone something because they lack something. I think it's really important for all of us to be like we we all we're all lacking right now. Um, there's very few of us that have really been able to stay connected to our success markers that we really truly believe in that go beyond financial, and that we yeah that that we're all in this together, you know, in many ways, and we can connect and make meaningful partnerships because you connect with me, and we can talk about like for instance, I never thought I'd be on a on a (laughs) podcast with a a marketing guru talking about mental health, you know, but because you share that, we can do that. And I really believe that that's incredibly powerful. Yeah. Well, and the difference is, I think that I, my why isn't marketing, right? And the point of this podcast isn't, it's to show people um, a way of living and it's businesses that inspire me that are rooted in authenticity. So that's what, and figuring out what makes them work. Mm. And that's why I started this because so many businesses fail, so many fail, but we only hear about the ones that work and we're only interviewing the people that have businesses because if they fail, then they're not here. Mm. And so I always really wanted to figure out, well, what is it that makes something succeed? And I started working with these people and I'm like, it's intention and it's authenticity. I know what that is. And let's explore that because being able to step onto a stage and read your poetry and perform it is no simple feat. And there has to be so much risk, so much uh, courage, so much willingness, so much um, 
battle with resistance, you know, even to share my writing just on a little app called Instagram is really nerve wracking to me. And to do what you do is just so inspiring. And the fact that you've made a business right out of this um, and a career and a life um, is incredibly inspiring. So that's what the podcast is. And, And my why is to remind people who they really are. So marketing is just my, you know, one of my hows, one of my what's, but then I'm a Reiki master and I teach yoga. And so it's, it's in all aspects of my life. I'm reminding you of your light. And I think that's why the podcast works because I can just share your light and get to, you know, share your gifts and brag about you. And, and that's what makes this so fun. So for me, having somebody just see me as this like cookie cutter digital marketing, like that's not that's not me. And for so long, I had that fear of not wanting to share certain parts of my life. Mm. But I want you to hire me because you want to work with all of me and you're going to get an amazing experience and it's going to work and you're going to grow, but also it's a vibe. Mm. And I want you to know before you pay and before you get on the phone, there's no lying, there's no duping. And I think with art, it's like the veil is already lifted. But when you have a business like mine, it's like you can easily hide behind it. And with art and with what you do, there's no hiding. Um, And that to me, that vulnerability, did that come natural to you to be able to just share so openly, you know, from from that kid writing in your room in Mm. college to your friend who had passed to now having like millions of views, people know your name, performing on stage screaming from the rooftops and it's not light what you're writing about what you're mm. sharing about it's it's not <laughs> it's not light <laughs> um it's in, it's quite intense and passionate and deep and and dark um so tell me more about that that process of like making that transition to like stepping into this so fully i know you don't want to call yourself a master but you know what i mean i know what you mean i've been i've been around I've, I've walked on some stages <laughs> around the place. Um, I think that it was a process that in some ways came easily and other ways was very hard. So I was the kid in primary school that was comfortable on stage. I, was, I could host a little thing in the classroom. I could read out loud to the group. I, I, could, I could do that. So... And actually, the way that that has come to fruition in my adult life is that in some ways, what happens when I step onto a stage, when I'm really prepared to step onto stage and I'm fully in my space, is that somehow I kind of create this space that is, I don't know, I think the word sacred gets thrown around a lot and what I think it actually is, is that I'm fully, fully, fully present. I'm doing my absolute best to be as present as possible. And if I think back in my life over the past 10 years of touring and performing, I'm possibly most present on stage. Something about the pressure of people watching or sharing or being a vessel for stories or needing to memorize, needing to perform, needing to tell these stories in the most powerful way. And something that I even learned competing in poetry slams is that I have to be at my best at 8.30, p.m. on this stage in this place at this time. And there's something about that that really made me shake off every other piece of anxiety, of stress, of fear, or I'm hungry, or I haven't drunk enough water, or I'm hungover or I'm, I've got jet lag, I've just arrived from the airport to the stage, nothing seems to be able to really touch me when I'm mm. on stage. Nothing really seems to be able to get in the way. And that's a great lesson to learn that actually you can create that, that power, that strength in your life all the time. You know, like a lot of the excuses we have or a lot of the pains that we have or issues that we have, which is ironic because I've got chronic headaches, but that's another conversation but i <laughs> i feel as though for some reason me and the stage we have this relationship where like i'm on and mm-hmm. and i'm ready and i'm there and it's it it is in some ways a spiritual experience for me a spiritual sharing for me 
but I don't like to I don't like to kind of belittle those words and and share them too much. I don't say that very often actually to anybody. But that's really what it is. I'm, if I'm present, then this thing works because I could easily be saying a poem and thinking of something else at the same time because I know I've performed some of my poems like 400, 500, 600 times, you know. So I could wow. easily be somewhere else in my mind during that. But my my challenge is to be present with the same words that I wrote 10 years ago and make them mean something new for me in this moment. What do they mean to me now? And be present and present them to people and treat every single stage that I land on as the most important performance of my life, which is not easy and it doesn't always happen, but to respect every audience from, you know, 20 kids in a school somewhere in, in Beijing to 5,000 people at a festival somewhere in, in Byron Bay or wherever else to be able to make sure that I'm delivering my best and being present. And so I actually am more comfortable on stage than I am in real life. It's kind of weird. Most people freak out when they get on the stage. I'm like, I'm home, you know, like I'm here. Mm. I know what I'm about to say. I've got all my words memorized. No one's going to ask me anything necessarily that I'm not going to be prepared for. Uh, the jokes I'm going to tell, I know mostly that they work, you know, like the lights on, yeah. the mic works, everyone can hear me. I'm good, you know. You're prepared. My sister's that way. My sister's quite shy and introverted and she's a dancer and has a dance company in San Francisco. And ever since she was three years old, she just owned. That's her language. Yeah. Yeah. So then I'm on the street and someone will be like, Hey, Luca, you know, like I really love your stuff. And I'm, I'm, I try and be as nice as possible. And if I'm not nice, it's not because of them or because I don't, I don't respect their space and time and and joy at, at connecting. It's because I'm awkward sometimes. Well, and it's about <laughs> the art. It's about the words. And I think what really comes to mind for me when I listen to your poetry, especially when I, because I listen to it, right? It's not just reading it. It's like an experience, um, a lot of your stuff. And it, when you're a kid, you know, you're fighting with your sister. You're like being violent. And my mom used to say, use your words, right? Like use your words. If you want something, if you want like to ask for something, if you're upset about something, use your words. And that mm. really resonates with, with me because what you're getting across and the stories that you're sharing and the, it, you're taking a stance, you're taking a very specific stance. And it's like this really nonviolent way of communicating something pretty intense and pretty heavy and it's that's just what ha when whenever I listen it's like I hear my mom saying use your words and it's like so powerful mm -hmm. it's like the most powerful use of words um what you do and what you share and what you write about and and I love mm -hmm. that you are educating people now um and teaching like going into these schools in Beijing like how cool to have you come into a school how did you get into so I don't know if you want to say anything about that, but that's just a little epiphany that I've had about. It's like the definition of use your words, you know, instead of being violent, instead of fighting back, instead of, you know, using means that are less um, peaceful, but it's like, it's not peaceful, the words, but it's because it's performance and it's entertainment and it's, it like allows you to almost go deeper in a way. Yeah, I guess... A long time ago, I realized that doing my, my words, my performances, my poems, my writing, for sure, but also delivering workshops and amplifying young, mostly young voices and voices of color and voices from different backgrounds and, and also teaching some people that are, are more privileged, young people of their privilege and how that, how that can work and function and how they can use that as a tool in their own lives to help bring people up and all these different kind of ways of talking to and with and amplifying the voices of young people, that that really is my best form of activism. That's, I, I've been in picket lines, I've painted the signs, I've protested and I still do sometimes and I, you know, have community meetings or, you know, like I've connected with a lot of people that are doing a lot of powerful work and I love that they are using their tools to do the best that they can 
to help bring people up around them or to create a more equal society. I just realized pretty early on that I'm much more use in a classroom helping a young kid pen a perfect line, pen an honest line of poetry, pen a vulnerable line of poetry, write something reflective on their position in society or, or research something about people that have you know, more difficult times than they do even right next to them in the classroom and write a poem about it, that that really is where I'm best placed to help shift social conversations, help shift our psyches in, in the world. And so I've actually been doing workshops for 14 years. So it's almost as long as I've been writing and, and rapping and making music and making poems. Um, I went to a school called Milpera State High School, which is a school that welcomes recent migrants or refugee young people um, when they arrive to Brisbane, my hometown. I went there. I completely lied to get my first job. I said that I'd already done workshops before and they went really well just because I knew I could do it. I knew I had the personality to do it. I knew that I was, it was going to be my thing. I'm just, it was just what I wanted to do and I felt connected with it. And I went in and, and did it. We wrote some amazing songs with some young people from Burundi and they had some really serious histories, some really, um, it's interesting. They had some really hectic, files you know about these young people that they'd done this and they'd done that and this you know this crazy history of of being child soldiers or being you know part of things that they that they didn't want to be because of the the violence that was going on in their countries and i intentionally decided not to read their file even though i was meant to i decided just to take them as kids just to be like they're just they're just little homies who are just going to hang, you know, they're just like little friends. They're like my nephews or cousins or, you know, we're just going to hang and we're going to make tunes and that's it. We're going to make some songs. We're going to, we're going to write some raps. We're going to record some stuff. We're going to have fun. And that's, and that's what I did. And because I didn't read the file or I didn't put them in the box of what they'd done in the past or where they're from or what they're, you know, there seems to be sometimes this, kind of condescending view that sometimes gets placed upon young people that are from difficult circumstances. And with that out of the way, we just hung out and made music. And that was the first time that I'd done some workshops and that was in 2006. And since then, it's really been a big part of my process and every step along the way that I've built and grown and, you know, performed and toured, I've been doing workshops along the way in schools and education centers, universities, and I've been lucky enough to, to watch young people that I've worked with start their own poetry slams or, you know, become their own published poets or do their own things throughout the years. And I've seen how I can have an effect in the places that I go to with my skill set. And I think everyone has a skill set no matter what it is like you, you know, you know your skill set and you know that you can use it to amplify people that deserve to be amplified and so that's that's kind of my it's always been parallel to my own writing i think that's so beautiful that not only do you you know use your words in such a powerful way but you teach other people how to do the same thing it's like you share the the magic um in some ways and help people tap into that and before we get into what you're doing now um and how sort of covid has shifted um you know, you're not being able to go into schools and be on tour as much. So I'm really excited that actually more people will get to access you. But before we get into that, I have a super random thing that came up. So I am a huge fan of Hamilton. Yeah. Um, like die hard, like knows every word, <laughs> like took it too far, you I'm know? Hamilton. Yeah, yeah, I awesome. get like, I, I get what some people I go through phases that are quite obsessive right. and I went you through a Hamilton videos. Phase. Do you perform stuff at home? Make I, I do. Awesome. I can Amazing. perform any song. Um, now wow. I, in the whole thing, I mean, I know Hamilton, but my question is from a professional 
Um, I feel like that was kind of the first time our world has seen like mainstream sort of rap poetry put together in this way. And it was amazing. And I just wish every history lesson could be taught that way. Right. It was profound. And I just was wondering if like what you thought about Hamilton, especially being in your industry, do you feel like it helped hurt? Do you have feedback? Do you like him? Do you not? I like dying to know your like take on Hamilton. I think that it was, yeah, a watershed moment. It's a really important moment. And the way that it was done was really smart. And it's incredibly important and powerful the way that it fused musical theater, musical theater and hip hop, not just musical theater and hip hop as in we're going to make a hip hop musical. That's actually happened. <laughs> there's been a, there is a, there is a thing called hip hop theater. That's like a genre. Uh, there's plenty of things that have been made in that sense, but to that level, not so much. And to actually bring in to the musical theater world, musicians like Questlove who played drums on the whole album and the way that it really did enmesh and connect the, the communities of those two spaces in many ways. And obviously, as a writer, um, I love it because of how Lin-Manuel really did what I was saying before, which is like to research, 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 and then go, all right, these are these characters. How is it going to rhyme and tell the narrative? And obviously, it's huge. Like, it's incredibly long as well. So he just went deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And deeper. So it was... For me, when I, when I witnessed that, I was like, all right, now it's serious. Now hip-hop is, I mean, it already was probably by that time the, the most popular genre of music in the world, still is. And even in Greece, where I'm from, where my family's from, it is the most popular musical genre even in Greece and a lot of rappers are rapping in Greek. There's even some rappers that are rapping in, in classical Greek and ancient Greek. And so there's, you know, like hip-hop is really a continuation of the the storytellers the rhapsodes that i was talking about before hip-hop obviously with thanks to the ingenuity of the black community and of blues and of the griots from from africa and this kind of whole storytelling tradition which isn't only you know for a certain demographic, there's poets, there's been poets and have been storytellers in every single uh, culture in the world. But obviously hip hop coming from this heritage of struggle and of oppression and of finding a way to tell a story when it's being stifled, it's, it's ingenious that it was used in this way mm-hmm. and that it has come to this point now that it's reaching a new peaks, I guess, new levels. I mean, there's new- like seven-year-old kids that n- are rapping like quickly every word. And I just think to have that experience at that young age and see that on stage, um, especially like you said, because it features the Black community and like really gets into, I think hip hop can be so misunderstood and rap can be yeah, so I think it's the same with poetry. I think it's ridiculous that, and it's this, yeah, it's really interesting where people are like, oh, hip hop's all crap or it's all this or it's all that. It's like, it's not all crap. It's a genre of music. And there's, there's first of all, there's artists in that genre of music that you're not going to like. And there's artists in that genre of music that you are going to like. And unfortunately, what gets played on the radio often is the stuff that I would actually never listen to. Like I'm listening to less and less mm. hip hop but I'm listening to more and more things like Hamilton and artists that are thinking in new ways or that are yeah, doing things that are just more conscious. And there's always been the conscious rapper and the party rapper. There's always been the hypersexualized, you know, rap song and the song for your mum. You know what I mean? Like there's always been all of that. And that's just a gamut of human experience. It's not because hip hop is better or worse. Um, po- there's also a lot of shit poetry in the world. You can't just say, oh, poetry is awesome and hip hop's not. It's like, no, there's bad hip hop, there's bad poetry, there's good hip hop, there's good poetry. And well, who decides what's good or bad is really, you know, what I think is bad, other one, someone else thinks is great. Right. And so it's, it's just a genre 
like any other genre. It just happens to be massive. And unfortunately, it happens to be subject to, I think, a lot of, a lot of racial judgment, a lot of racism that's kind of automatic because it comes from black culture. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that really needs to be unpacked when people just say uh, all hip hop's like this, or or they're surprised when they see a person of color say something profound. You know, like why are you surprised at that? So the, these are the questions that need to be unpacked, and I think Hamilton's done an, a pretty amazing job to to help unpack those or to subvert some people's opinions of what hip hop is about. And Hamilton really became something that influenced me because. Around the same time that it came out, I got uh, an offer from a composer at the Sydney Conservatorium to to make something, to to just collaborate on something. And I decided to go as extreme as I possibly could and just take on the small task of creating a reinterpretation of the Odyssey of Homer's <laughs> epic. So it's like the most epic story ever told. It's a 30-hour-long poem. Our version of it is about 90 minutes long. We've been working on it for six years, and we hope that it's it's going to come to fruition in the next I want to see that so bad. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's my baby. It's my That's baby that amazing. I've been working on for a long time, and it's the longest thing that I've written, the longest piece of work that I've done. Um, but, yeah, it's basically a 90-minute-long poem or 24 different scenes of of hip hop and poetry with a choir and orchestra on stage. So it's, it's not so Hamilton as in, it's not so musical theater ish, but it's, it's a a narrative of an ancient Greek epic told in English and Greek. And I tried to stay very close to the original in some parts and go kind of a little bit wild with my imagination in other parts. But yeah, it's been, it's been six years that we've been writing it and I think the the um the budget for Hamilton was like seven million dollars in the end. Yeah, yeah. mine's like twenty two dollars fifty. Um, <laughs> but, but we've been we've been doing real well. No, I did a crowdfunding. We did a good crowdfunding a few years ago. So I'm going to thank my people that done that. And anyone that joins my Patreon is is really supporting Odysseus and my work to to keep doing workshops online and to keep creating in these crazy times. Yeah. We'll talk about that now. Um, the last thing I do want to say though, and for me, what, so as somebody who doesn't consider myself an artist, I'm the audience, right? So I'm moved by it. Um, and I think we play such an important role in society, right? Because we're the ones that are digesting the art. We're the ones that are being moved, going home, thinking about it, listening to the soundtrack for, you know, X amount of times, replaying the YouTube video, like sending it to 20 people. And for me, what art does, what experiences like Hamilton or watching one of your spoken word videos or seeing Trevor on stage, it's proof of God in a way that is so like, visual like it's it's I actually have no words because that's all that's the only thing that can come out it's like it like it's proof of God it's proof of something so much bigger and the fact that this person is this vessel and has been able to tap into it and step into it like so much had to happen for that Mm -hmm. video to get made so much had to happen for that song to get produced so much had to happen for Hamilton like the brilliance from Lin-Manuel to the performance to the set down to everything. When I used to work in Hollywood, um, I worked on movies and it was the same thing. It's like you bring something to life that was not even there before. And what I do is different because I see something that's already here and I try and help it reach more people or craft it or message it differently or shape it or shift it. But to me, this art, what you create, it's like, it's not there and then it is. And that's like only proof of God to me. And that's the that's what I feel when I'm listening to Hamilton, when I'm listening to Trev, when I'm listening to your music. It's like our connection to something bigger, and you're the messenger for that. And that's what this music does. And as somebody who, you know, is never going to be rapping on stage, but I get to help make sure. Never say never. <laughs> If I ever get Lin Manuel on this podcast, I will do the whole Aaron Burr song. <laughs> <laughs> and 
I want to be Hamilton and he can be Aaron Burr. Um, but anyway, let's talk about what you're doing now. Cause this is really exciting. If we're not in Australia or not in school, we can actually still learn from you, connect with you, join Patreon, your Patreon account. Like you have all these online offerings, which is so exciting that you're so accessible now. So talk to me about what you're doing, how you've shifted um, in these last few months because of COVID and everything else. And um, yeah, I just think it's really cool how you're stepping into the online space. Yeah, it's been a wild ride. I think oof, it's crazy because I've been touring like nonstop for a very long time. And not as long as Trevor, but a long time. For me, also, for everybody listening, Luca and I met through Trevor and Emery. Luca is a friend of uh, yeah. Luca and his wife are a friend of Emery and Trevor. So that's how we got connected. Most of my cool people come through Emery and Trevor. <laughs> <laughs> and you probably heard my voice before we met because of there's that song on Trevor's album called Forgive on the Carla album. So mm-hmm. I've got a poem on there that happened after we met when he was in Australia one time we were at a festival together and we connected. So that's how that happened, which is a funny story as well. And he is, yeah, we just become a good friend and we were doing our things, but just like him and me, it's like we, we're touring, 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 used to it kind of on a plane once a month minimum doing the thing. And then COVID hits and I had like my biggest year booked. I had my biggest year ever like ready to roll out schools all over the country to actually I'd just been to China. So I was in China in January teaching in schools, oh, shit. just got back to Australia just before everything kind of happened. And I just snuck through actually. And I started getting all these cancellations and the feeling was like I was getting fired like 175 times. Yeah. All these different creative and not so creative ways and at the same time I felt completely disappointed and and scared and absolutely like this greatest feeling of relief that I had never really had before like I felt so relieved like at the same time I was like I don't know what we're going to do but I feel so thankful that I'm not going to be jumping on planes and touring all over the planet again this year it looks like at least for the next four months it looked like at the time right and what had been happening for me is that for a couple of years before all of that going on I'd been thinking about how can I do this from home how can I spend more time with my wife how can I um, eventually have a family and be able to do that at home without needing to fly away and be present as a father when that time comes how can I figure out a way to make this work without needing to get on planes all the time And most of the people, like a lot of my mentors, are music industry people rather than poetry people. And they're just like, it's impossible. You can't, especially now where you can't really sell albums or you don't really make money from albums. It's all about streams. Artists are only making money from online tours. It's impossible for you to basically do this. So I knew that it was possible because I'm always the one that when people say something's impossible, I'm the one that goes, well, you know, like, screw that. Challenge accepted. Yeah, challenge accepted. Thank you very much. (laughs) Choose your weapons. I'm ready. And, but I'd been putting it off. I wasn't really sure how to do it. And I was scared about taking the financial hit of saying no to all these in-person gigs while doing the conversion to, to go online in this capacity. And so I hadn't done it yet. I hadn't really figured out how to take that risk yet. And anytime I get free time to be at home, I like save, I like really savor it to write. I don't try and then do business stuff if I'm at home because that's what I'm doing. You know, it feels like I'm doing kind of fulfilling my duties when I'm out on the road. When I'm in the classroom, it's great, but I don't, or when I'm on the stage, it's great, but I don't think many people really realize how much admin and how much work there is around a tour for an artist, how much stuff needs to happen around it. It really is more than a nine-to-five, way more than a nine-to-five job. And so I hadn't done it yet. I hadn't made that conversion. But when this happened, I was, I was at home. <laughs> I was cancelled for the rest of the year. I had time and, man, those two months of, of full lockdown for me, um, of full quarantine, was, were actually bliss for me because I got very, very lucky 
Uh, and I think that being around Byron Bay and Byron Shire in Australia at the moment is possibly the luckiest place that I could be in the world. So I, I don't take it for granted. But with that, I guess, comes a bit of a responsibility. And I was like, all right, well, what? how can I still give to the planet? How can I still be of service through my process, be an activist through my skill set? How can I do what I what I love and feel like me and feel like I'm at home in my work while being here? And so, you know, that's when we got in touch and we figured out that there, there is a way. There's always a way. <laughs> there is always a way and doors opened and things happen naturally. And I have to say that, that you asked me about my why at the beginning of the conversation. And one of the ways I know that poetry is my why and my what and my when, where, how, what, <laughs> and the rest of them is because from the day that I chose poetry, from the day that I said I'm a poet, doors have always opened. Doors have always opened really crazily, like really perfectly. And anytime I feel like I'm going to go down, down the hole or, you know, down a dark place or not survive or anytime I think about quitting and I, and I recommit, I'm always rewarded for that commitment. I know. Isn't it crazy how that happens? I also think it has to do with uh, service as well, because yes, you're absolutely meant to do that, but the work that you do is serving so many and it's like so needed Mm. um, to like, it's needed. It's not just like, Oh, that's cute. He's a poet. It's like, it's changing the world Mm. and it's meant to come through. And I find that with my work too, even, I know it sounds silly, but with the work that I do, well, you know, the work that I do, it's not really marketing. It is, but it isn't at all. Yeah. It's a a spiritual purpose. My work here, but but I think every single thing that we can do, just like everything can be a form of activism. Everything can be done with with yeah. spirit. It's everything a prayer, honestly, the, like everything I do. To the cleaner, to the, you know, like whoever it is, the singer, the king, the, you know, whoever it is, whatever you do, whatever you set your time in, whatever you do with your time, there can be presence in that. And if there's presence in that, it, it's amazing. You can be doing the exact same thing in a bitter way. Oh, and totally. Oh, and I have. Your, I do my emails. Yeah, and I do bitter. too sometimes. <laughs> I do my sometimes, emails. You know, and I, and I notice that I don't actually don't get as many, yeah, there aren't as many opportunities in the world, whether it's because I'm not seeing them or they're not coming or if, if it's because I'm just I'm imagining it, whatever it is, it feels, it feels better anyway because you're being present. So it doesn't really matter. What yeah. matters is that you are, you are focused, you are present and you're doing it in a way that's of service and you're thinking about other people in the process. And so, yeah, it came, it came to the point where, yeah, we're doing this thing. We're doing an online course in January for the first time, 14 years of experience of writing. I've put it, a lot of it in video form and there's going to be live components as well. And basically anything and everything I can possibly give that I've learned in my process since that very first workshop in Brisbane at that school in Milpera to today and I'm put it in a package and it's, and we're going to roll, we're going to roll and hang with some people and connect and we're going to write some shit. We're going to write some shit. I'm a lot so, of shit. a lot of poems are going to get written. Like, <laughs> I'm so yeah, happy I'm about this. I'm so proud of you for like pivoting, you know, and I think that is a business that is the business mind, you know, like it's, it's what shows me when you're really pro and Stephen Pressfield's one of my favorite writers because he talks to the artist that is creating a business, right. And the professional writer, the professional artist. Mm. And, um, even I'm not, but he he speaks to me because there is an art to what I do. There's a flow, there's a presence, um, to what anybody does. My my operations gal, there's an art to those spreadsheets, man. Like nobody can do that like she does. And anyway, in his book, Turning Pro, he talks about the professional artist and how, mm. you know, the professional doesn't wait for inspiration to hit. The professional gets up and sits down and inspiration hits every morning at 9 a.m. when the pen touches the paper kind of thing. 
mm-hmm. and you write. And it's about dedication. It's about consistency. It's about surrender so much. Um, but one of the main things is about pivoting and it's like being willing to like, this is what I'm meant to do. It's not that you're giving up on, obviously this is what you're meant to do, but like world circumstances required you to pivot in your business. And this is the way that you can be the most of service to so many right now. Like the people that are taking online courses, me for one have never taken online courses before in my life, but COVID Mm. has me so excited. This is how I'm connecting. I teach a course on Tuesday nights, 20 people in a room. They're amazing. I get to talk to them, connect with them. Like it's a whole new world and Mm. either you're in or you're out. And so I think we're being asked um, as humans, as artists, as business owners, um, how bad do you want it? How bad are you willing, you know, to, to, to do this stuff? And, and I just am so happy because it means more people get to witness the magic um, that you get to bring. You're teaching classes, you're doing a course, and you have a Patreon um, account where you're delivering tons of content and amazing value. So there's so many ways you can connect with Luca, which is very exciting. Um, and I'm just so grateful to have to have met you and to have conversations like this because I think um, when you are an artist and have to have a business, it's I mean, one thank goodness for y'all because that's what I do um, is work with people like Luca. These are my favorite clients and um, help them share their gifts. Like I love what you said. My job is to help you amplify and reach more people and your purpose is to amplify and reach and it just goes on and on. Mm. So we're just in service and it's, it's beautiful. And also what we do is so different and we're so different and have had such different lives and experiences and and, you know, I've lived on opposite sides of the world and it's um, so powerful that the, the art um, can just move so many, like, it doesn't matter that I don't understand Greek mythology that much. Like it's just as powerful. Um, it's like breaking so many barriers. So my final question for you is if you have any advice or a prayer or just um, a message for somebody that's maybe just starting out, just you know, feeling that call to write, to perform, to share, in addition to uh, joining your course and Patreon account to learn more, Mm. but um, any advice for them to, to start now or to any prayer at all, message, anything? My message would be that a lot of people sit down to write and they start writing pretty things and then they they slip into a realm of writing something scary, of writing something that gives them butterflies or gives them heart palpitations or brings up a memory of something that they're worried about or scared of saying or scared of expressing. And so they go back to writing pretty things with technical words, with good rhyme schemes and assonance and alliteration and all these intellectual ideas about what poetry should be. My advice is that the good poem is in the scary place, the place that you avoided writing about or writing from, the thing that gave you butterflies. That's, that's not a signal to stop writing. That's the signal that you've touched something that's worth writing about. And that's really important because every time somebody writes about something like that, there is healing in that. There is a lesson, a learning in that. You might need to go research or have a conversation or you might write a poem about something difficult that you couldn't say to your partner, but when you read it to them in a poem, it like breaks through that difficult space, that that wall that was between you. And one poem at a time, one butterfly at a time, one, one um, difficult thing to write about at a time, your relationships change, your relationship to yourself changes, and and that's how the world changes slowly. And every time you write about that thing, and I've been doing this for long enough to to see it, I write about that thing, I'm scared about writing about that thing, I write about it, I perform it. Some of those poems go into the world, some don't, but there's always another one. There's always another one that comes up once you've made room by dealing with the first one. And after time, that first one doesn't hold the same charge and, and then there's another one that holds charge 
and that's mm-hmm. the one you work with and that's that's how poetry can help us grow and so yes it's great to learn all these different techniques but my process of teaching is less about an academic sense of what poetry should be and more i don't i want to say i don't want to say more human but because academics are human too but maybe more embodied or maybe it's just more it's come from a place of me writing my way out of a of a dark place and so my lessons are more based on how we can shift and move and grow in, and how poetry can be the catalyst for that change and growth. I think that's oh, so beautiful the way you say embody it that's different from academics because what I always say is like there's you can either intellectualize something or embody something. And, and I think wisdom is embodied. I understand yeah. intellect. I understand the I've been there and that's why you know I'm there a lot because I get chronic headaches and I'm intellectual and I'm sitting and writing a lot, you know, like I get that my journey for the past, which is amazing why Trevor's Trevor's album came out when he sent it to me and I saw the title. I was like, Oh yeah. Right. Exactly. So, so I really feel as though it's the time now that we've all stopped as well. And most of us are home. It's time to get in the body and there's a wisdom when the words sit well, I was talking to a friend of mine. That's a, that's like a, a somatic experience Mm. person and a sex therapist and and i have some other friends around here that that also do somatic stuff and she was saying that yes intellect is awesome intellect is amazing we can do all sorts of backflips and and somersaults and incredible feats without into intellect and theory but when you're talking to somebody and, and you're and you're experiencing something and you're having a conversation or you're reading or whatever it is if it doesn't make sense to the body if it doesn't feel right in the body, it yes, it may be a great piece of intellectualism, but is it wise? Is it wisdom? Does it does it make sense? Um, does it sit well? And I, I don't want people to use that as a way of telling people that are talking about oppression, like, oh no, that doesn't sit well in my body. Not, <laughs> that's not what we're saying. No, it's, it's not what I'm saying at all. <laughs> what I'm saying is that is that poetry can easily be taken to the headspace and only the headspace. But when you feel it in your gut, that's when it's an action. The words become an action because it makes something move. And my message, I guess, my my short version of a long-winded message is don't be scared Mm. of that charge. Mm. Lean into that charge. Lean into that fear and write about that stuff because that's the stuff that's going to take your poems from just words to actions. I love it. Thanks for being here. I'm so excited to share you with my audience. You're going to, this is so exciting. You guys got to look him up. Um, I'm going to put your website and Instagram and everything in the calls to actions, but he's Luca Lesson on Instagram and your website. Is it lucalesson.com.au? Yeah. Okay. Um, And there's so much there, so much content um, so much writing. It's so beautiful. And you can sort of get lost, which I have. And then I end up texting it and sharing it with a bunch of people, which is why I'm so happy you're sharing so much on Instagram. Cause it's easier to just like share it with somebody that way. Yeah. The convenience yeah. for your audience. Yeah. Anyway, thank you for being here. Thank you for your time. I'm grateful to know you. Me too. Been a pleasure. Yeah. And, uh, to everyone listening, um, This was such a special episode. I knew I wanted to talk to Luke. I knew I wanted to share him with you. I didn't know in what way, but it always is perfect. So thank you for being here. Thank you for evolving with me um, as I'm on this journey. And I'm just going to keep sharing what inspires me at the moment. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And until next time, keep growing. 